0: Family. Our scripture today is going to be Jude verses 11 through 16. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. "'twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, "'casting up the foam of their own shame, "'wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness "'has been reserved forever. "'It was also about these that Enoch, "'the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, "'Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands "'of his holy ones to execute judgment on all "'and to convict all the ungodly "'of all their deeds of ungodliness "'that they have committed in such an ungodly way.' and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everybody.
1: Good to see you. Thanks. I mean, I thank the first service. Thanks for braving the typhoon. Crazy winds out there, yeah? Another disappointment is what it is. Oh, maybe the third time will be the charm. I hear there's one more out there floating around somewhere. We can pray it in for a weekday, okay, for a weekday. So you get a day off of work, day off of school. School started now. Guys, we could pray for two days off of school. Remember how much fun ROM was? Like, we could just pray for more ROM. It'd be fun. Uh, I got to meet a few of you who were visiting with us before the service started. I just wanted to let you know that our welcome guests hope you feel welcome that you feel at home just want you to know uh, you don't need to do anything to prove yourself to us Uh, just come in sit down Uh, this is our living room relax Um, be part of us and if you want to sing with us sing if you want to listen listen if you want to sit silently sit silently you don't need to prove anything to us Uh, you don't need to perform to be accepted here one of the beautiful realities of the gospel is that jesus has proven everything in our place He's performed everything necessary for us to be made right with the Father. So there's nothing left for us to perform or to prove. We just receive uh, the grace that comes from God the Father through Jesus. So we're glad you're here. Let me pray. And um, what's up, Macy? It's good to see you. Welcome back. Fuji, was good? All right. All right. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, We just want to pause and remember that we're your kids, we're needy kids, and so like Jesus taught us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You deserve uh, all of our attention and our affection, our love. Um, We're going to give it to you imperfectly now, but you deserve all of it in perfect ways that we can't even muster up. We pray today that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. not in some weird abstract way, but here in Okinawa specifically and in this room and in our hearts that we would see the beauty of your kingdom and your will and would gladly submit ourselves to it and join in your work. We pray that you would give our souls the nourishment that we need for today so that we would be satisfied and joyful and so that we wouldn't run to other places or people for meaning or identity um, or for satisfaction we pray that In the same way that you've forgiven us so generously, you would incline our stingy hearts, my stingy heart, to be generous with grace toward other people who have sinned against me. And Father, I pray that you would lead my feet away from temptation and deliver me from evil. I pray that for all of my friends who are in this room, too. You know how quick our feet are to run from you uh, when we doubt your goodness or your kindness. And Father, remind us it's your kingdom, your power, and your glory so that we can be free from our tendencies to kind of build our own kingdom in this life, to give ourselves to building our own kingdom, to living for our own glory or fame at the expense of other people and for feeling like we need to live in our own strength or power or even projecting power to people so that they think of us a certain way, a power that we don't really have anyway. So I pray that you'd free us from these as we see the beauty of your kingdom, your power, and your glory. And we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if this is your first Sunday with us, we're in a short series through the New Testament letter of Jude. It's barely a page. You find it right before Revelation, right towards the end of your New Testament. Um, Jude. We're three weeks in. Yeah, three weeks in. Our, our series theme for Jude is forever kept, reminding us that while We were all rebels who had run far from home and far from our Father. He pursued us in kindness. He forgives us in Jesus. And He rescues us in as adopted sons and daughters. And that's an important word because we 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 were reminded in the first week our Father doesn't do foster care. As beautiful as foster care can be, God actually is not in the foster care business. He is an adoptive Father. He plays for keeps. And so if you have been adopted in and forgiven... You are fully loved, um, you are fully forgiven, and you're forever kept. You're a forever son or a forever daughter, forever kept. Our big idea from the text uh, in Jude this morning is right here. When we contend for the faith, our family becomes a beautiful harbor, a safe place where people find rest and redemption, contend. When we contend for the faith. Our family becomes a beautiful harbor, a safe place where people find rest and redemption. I want to keep things um, simple this morning, and so I really want to work to draw your attention to three ideas that are in that statement. The first is, Jesus' family is beautiful. Jesus' family is safe. And I think what we're going to see in Jude this morning is that Jesus cares way more than we realize about his family remaining beautiful and remaining safe for other people. cares deeply. And as we understand how much he cares, we will be a contending family. Uh, We'll get to this in a moment, but remember contending is way different than contentious. Uh, But that we would collectively work at something specifically for the faith. We'll see that in Jude. Uh, Because it's our contending that leads to being a safe and beautiful family or harbor. Which, I kind of wanted to state my big idea negatively for you. I already gave it to you positively, but just so we kind of understand what's going on in the text this morning. Here it is negatively. Um, Or if you just expect a pastor to be angry and yell some things and be negative. Here you go. Here's the negative big idea. In the absence of contending, the safe harbor of our church Fills with hidden reefs, safety and beauty ripped away. No rest, no redemption, only shipwreck. That's what we're going to see in Jude this morning. And let's begin by uh, it's already been read for us. Ben, thank you for that. Let me uh, draw your attention to that idea of contending, which we'll actually see in verse three. Uh, You guys ever seen word clouds? Like if somebody's summarizing a speech or a book, they'll generate a word cloud based on the frequency of usage or the importance of the words. And so there are always one or two dominant words in the cloud. You guys have seen that, yeah? Okay, good. If Jude were a word cloud, contend would maybe be, if not the biggest word, one of the big words, just like you would look at the cloud and immediately you would see the word contend. It's that important to Jude's letter. So he says in verse three, Beloved, you know, you know, I was really eager to write a different letter to you. I just wanted to talk about our common salvation, talk about how kind God is to us, how beautiful the gospel is, how awesome Jesus is as our Savior and rescuing King. That's what I wanted to write. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you. So I had to ask you, urge you, encourage you as a family to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude wrote the letter because uh, churches in this region were not contending for the faith in a way that would make the churches or the culture of these churches beautiful and safe. And so he writes to urge them. Now, I just want to say one thing about the contending, um, maybe a couple of things. Again, not, not a contentious family, a gentle, loving, kind, winsome, but a gentle, kind, loving, winsome family that cares deeply about a certain kind of work to safeguard the beauty and the safety of the culture that God has given to Jesus' family. Now, if you look in verse 4, you understand why they had to contend. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. If you're new, I'm not skipping any of the hard statements in here. Last week, we covered a lot of this ground. Just wanted to uh, recap to show you why today's stuff is so important. Uh, ungodly people. Here's what happened. Here, here's why they had to contend. They had perverted the grace of God into sensuality and in so doing, denying our only master And Lord Jesus Christ. So essentially, what we saw last week, Jesus in his kindness gave us limits for our good and for our flourishing. And what we saw last week is sensuality is a word very closely related to our sexuality, sexual identity, sexual expression. So we explored the limits that God in his kindness has placed on our sexual identity, sexual expression for our good and for our flourishing. But if, if and, and what we understood was sensuality would be sexuality without limits. But uh, what we need to see is that principle would be true in all of life. So while last week we st- focused on sexuality, we can step back from that this week, zoom out, and see that what he's talking about is in all of life, God in his kindness and goodness has placed limits for us, for our good and for our flourishing. And so one of the ways that we can pervert the gospel, and they were perverting the gospel, is they were moving towards sensuality, which is sexuality without limits, or we could just say life without limits, right? Which is a perversion of God's grace towards us. Now, God would never, if God loved us, he would never limit the sources of our joy. Or maybe he limited stuff for people in the past. He wouldn't, people change, societies evolve. uh, God understands, He, he wouldn't limit. He wants me to be happy. No limits. Embrace how I feel, right? So that would be sensuality. Now, that's not the only way we could pervert, though, the grace of God. Another way that we could pervert the the grace of God would be on the opposite end of the spectrum. And actually, I would submit to you, we probably have more experience, especially if you've grown up in the church, on this end of the spectrum. And I wanted to find a word that sounded like sensuality so we could remember it. And I couldn't find one, so I do what you do when you can't find a word and you just make up one of your own. Okay, so I already got my mom's approval. She liked it. So I don't really care what you think. I'm just going to use it in the sermon this morning. Okay. I'm going to use the word, it is a word, strictuality. Okay. That would be strict with uality. Okay. Because we have, because here's what it means sensuality is life without limits. Or we'll say it this way life beyond limits, sensuality. So over here, strict uality would be life behind limits but not just behind limits, behind artificial limits. Because we've already acknowledged that God in his grace has given us limits for our good and for our flourishing. Strictuality goes that extra step. Would you see this over and over again in the Old Testament, right, with God's people? The building of fences, artificial barriers, if you will, to... um, uh, to uh, like, it's kind of like, well, hey, we want to guard against this or that, but that's not really the heart of it. And so what happens is, in sensuality, freedom is the ultimate value. So that's our culture, right? Personal freedom, your autonomy, your right to self-rule and self-determine and self-discover. That is our culture's primary value and ethic. You have to know that, and you have to know that it stands in stark contrast to the gospel's beautiful message that no, Jesus is your ultimate authority, and he rules over you for your good and for your flourishing, okay? So sensuality, freedom is the ultimate value. Over here, though, with strictuality, um, freedom is, we're we're suspicious of and fearful of freedom, and so we build these barriers. Uh, We're suspicious of happiness and joy, and dancing, stop moving, your body shouldn't be moving to the music, right? And religious circles build all these walls and these barriers that equally pervert the grace of God. And both extremes have a poisoning effect in the culture of God's family. And so that's why Jude says, you gotta contend. You gotta contend for the beauty and the simplicity and the, uh, the clarity of the gospel and we need to contend for the beauty of God's limits on our lives, and we need to contend for the poisoning effect of life beyond limits, and we need to contend for the crippling effect. Strictuality, life behind artificial barriers, can't change a human heart and can't reconcile you to God and can't keep you in the family. God's love alone changes a heart and keeps you in the family, right? Contend for the faith. Contending's for all of us. This isn't a letter for pastors, it's a letter to churches. So the work of contending is something for every follower of Jesus who is part of God's family. Now, what I want to do is show you from Jude what happens to the safe harbor of God's family in the absence of contending. And what we're going to do is look from verse 12 to verse 13 because there's a really ugly picture there. And I just want to contrast for you the ugliness that's there with the beauty that should be there. So I think we probably have to look at the ugliness first, right? So here it is. Here's what's ugly. In your church family, verse 12, he says, these are hidden reefs. When he says these, he's talking about the people who have embraced sensuality or life beyond God's kind limits, we could also apply it to our strictuality, right? And just so you know, I'm gonna use that word about 20 more times this morning so that it does make it into our, into our vocabulary. It's a word and you're gonna use it in a conversation sometime this week and somebody's gonna stop and say, what did you just say? And they're like, that's not a word. I'm like, well, yeah, it is. It's strictuality, it'll become a word. That's how words happen. We can just make it up and it'll become a word. All right, good. So here's the ugliness. Uh, these are hidden reefs. So the people who are embracing sensuality, strictuality, but also that way of life becomes its own hidden reef. At your love feasts. Now, if you're new new to the faith or you haven't read Jude before, you're like, love feast? What's that? Why does a church have a love feast? I've never, have anybody gone to a love feast? What if we just rename our morning gatherings love feasts? How would that work culturally for us? All right, you laugh. But culturally in the first century what we call a Sunday morning worship service or worship gathering, they had a 9 a.m. love feast and an 11 a.m. love feast, okay? What they were doing was they were modeling their gatherings off of Jesus' last supper with his followers. They shared a meal. It was a feast. And love feast, because that final meal that Jesus shared with his disciples beautifully displayed God's love for his people. And then he went to the cross, right? So it retained that love element love feast it was their sunday morning worship gatherings where they would have a feast and then like they would have what we call communion or the eucharist or the lord's supper but probably their feasting at the table was almost indistinguishable from communion like at some point they would stop and they'd say this bread Uh, reminds us of Christ's body that was broken for us. And this wine that we are drinking reminds us of Jesus' blood poured out for us. But it was all part of the meal, the gathering. Somebody would read scripture. They would probably sing some psalms together. So the love feast was their Sunday morning worship service. You guys just want to change the name? You would love to be able to invite your non-Christian friends to, hey, you want to come to our love feast this week? You want that opportunity, don't you? We can make the change. All right, so at the love feast, though, Um, there's hidden reefs now. So here's the ugliness. What should be a safe harbor where broken, hurting people can sail in and find rest and redemption with calm, beautiful water? Now is so dangerous. If you sail in there, your soul will literally be ripped out like the hull of a ship being ripped on a hidden reef. It's ugly. At this gathering, there are shepherds feeding themselves. That's Without explanation, that's opposite and ugly. There are waterless clouds swept along by winds. You know that's opposite and ugly because clouds are supposed to contain water and they're supposed to be thirst quenching for, um, for places in drought and with oppressive heat. You want in the long, oppressive summer days of Okinawa or your 29 Palms existence or Yuma or California would love a rainstorm right now. You want the clouds to pour down rain. And throughout the Bible, rain and clouds are symbolic often of God's kindness and his mercy and his refreshing and his restoration and his forgiveness, the washing away of our sins. Make it rain, but there's no rain here. Even their trees, their fru- fruitless trees in light autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Now, who loves to go to the apple orchard and pick bushels of apples for like 10 bucks? Okay, welcome to Okinawa where you can go to the grocery store aisle and pick one apple for 10 bucks, right? Like, sorry about that. So you feel this, like God's family is supposed to be a place like walking into an autumn orchard where the fruit is literally falling off the limbs. It's sweet. It's filling, it's satisfying. Your soul walks away just, I'm good, I'm good. But there's no fruit on these branches. In fact, the trees are uprooted. Wild waves of the sea are casting up the foam of their own shame. So in the harbor, rather than calm water, their sensuality or their strictuality has led to rough water so that in the harbor, no one can rest. It's not safe and it's not beautiful. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In other words, God, Jude saying, look, God has created it in such a way that just like every star and planet has a place, God's family has a place and a purpose, and that is to shine the light of the gospel. And while everybody in our culture is living in, you've seen the perfect storm, that fishing crew in Maine, right? Is that Maine? And they, they sail out into the storm, and their ship sinks, and they, they all die. Our culture is the perfect storm. It's The waves are crashing and people are being thrown about and thrashed. Souls are wrecked. And Jesus' safe harbor is the place for rest and restoration. But there's no light at the harbor entrance anymore. There's no way to find the harbor. Because people in these families walking out from God's kind kingly rule now have shrouded what should be light with darkness. It's ugly. Now, before we focus on the ugliness too much, I just want to draw your attention to what should be cool and safe about God's family. Because look at this. By God's design, there shouldn't be any hidden reefs. In other words, his family should be the safest place on the face of this earth for everybody, followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus. You in danger, you find safety in our family. Your soul's in danger. You find safety in this harbor. That's God's design. God's design is that there would be leaders. He calls them shepherds who feed the sheep. So that's upside down from our culture. In our culture, leaders exist to be served by people below them and that you would prop up their platform. Not in God's family, no platforms, no stages. It's upside down here. Leaders or shepherds exist to pour themselves out for the good of other people. That's beautiful and countercultural. Clouds in God's family are never waterless. You gather with his family in his safe harbor, the clouds will pour down gentle, soul-refreshing rain that will give you life. That's beautiful. You walk into our family gatherings, you sail into our harbor, the tree's limbs are breaking under the weight of fruit that's designed to feed your starving soul. That's beautiful. No wild wave safety and stars and lights Perfectly aligned to guide you out of the storm and into the harbor. So, how in the world did they go from something so beautiful to something so hideous, unsafe, and lacking all beauty? Well, we don't have to guess, it's right there in verse 11. It happened to them this way, and it could happen to any church this way. It could happen to any Christian this way. Right here, verse 11. Uh, he starts out with, woe to them. Now, uh, we use the word woe in our culture in a positive way. Like, "Whoa!" It's never used that way in the Bible, okay? Woe is always, uh, so I grew up in the 80s. 80s people? Okay. 70s people. Hey, hey. Uh, you guys remember the control center stickers yeah. what color were they green and black and they had a skull this is how we used to raise children they had a skull they had crossbones, right and it had the poison control number always bad like always dangerous like you just associated those colors and that symbol always bad this is the poison control center sticker of the bible Woe was never good it's always bad and it's bad because it's a pronouncement of judgment. It's how most prophets would kind of begin their speech if they had to get up. But if you were about to get a word of God's judgment, probably going to begin with the word woe to them. For they, the people embracing sensuality, or we could say even strictuality. Did you get that? Strictuality? Root word of strict, uality. All right, good. Strictuality. Uh, for they walked, here it is, they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's Rebellion. These are the hidden reefs. Now, like I did for you last week, I want to give you a little chart because I know you read that and you're like, wow, that's obscure. Three Old Testament references. I don't know the stories. It would be easy to get lost in the details. So Let's focus on what's really clear. And then I'll give you just a little bit of background information that's relevant. You can do more study on your own later uh, if you'd like to. So, just like last week, Jude gives us a digression. He did this last week. So, here's our digression for this week. There is a walking away from living within the limits that God has given us for our good and our flourishing, walking away the digression leads to an abandonment because this is always a willful choice. What you need to see through these examples is you never just wake up where Cain was. You don't wake up where Balaam went to and you don't wake up where Korah was. Like there are decisions we make that lead us to those moments. So there's a walking away, right? A disbelieving that God is good, a disbelieving that he is kind, a disbelieving that he would even give limits, right? We trust our own judgment more than we trust his walking away. Balaam straight up abandons. That's that moment where you've been walking away. You look back. uh, The popular word now is deconstruct. Like, so the negative application of that word where your deconstruction kind of goes final and you wave goodbye to what was and you, you keep going. And then Korah's example where uh, Jude gets a little more pointed this week and, and, and Jude's just like, and Korah died. Like he, he perished. Like that'll be important for us. Okay, so the first guy he points to is Cain, and then Balaam, and then Korah. Um, now, answer, answer me this: Do you have any family members named Cain? Do you know any? Do you have any friends named Cain? Do you have? Do you know anybody in the world? You do? Wow! So there was no. I'm surprised. So one. People don't name people Cain, generally. Exception, of course. There's Canes in Okinawa. Which you all need to go to because it's the true and better Sam's or Costco or whatever you all clamor for over here that's not here, right? Just go to Cain's. But there's no Cain. Why? Because Cain became the embodiment of life lived beyond the limits of God's kindness, right? Beyond the limits. And then there's Balaam. We don't know a lot about Balaam, so let me just give you very brief context. Balaam was a prophet for hire, right? So basically he got his DD214 and got a job with Blackwater. He's a prophet for hire, right? He's a free agent. He can work for whoever is going to pay him the most amount of money. And that's actually what happened. The Moabites, the enemies of God's people, send uh, an official party with lots of gifts, a new car, some Bitcoin, all the things. And they're like, hey, um, Balaam, we need you to curse God's family for us. He's like, "Mm, how much? And they tell him, and he's like, give me a second. I need a 24-hour retreat with God to sort this out. Crazy, right? Let me go ask God if he's cool, if I just take this check, curse his people. Um, So he goes to Okuma. He prays for 24 hours. And God, not surprisingly, says, no, no. So Balaam goes back, and he said, hey, sorry, guys. God said, no. So they leave, they go to the king. The king says, all right, more money, more crypto, nicer cars, more women, all the things, go back and ask again. So they go back and, and Balaam says, um, all right, let me go ask God one more time. Maybe he'll think differently. This is, this is a significant offer. So he goes to God. God in that moment almost puts his hands up and says, I think I already told you, make your choice, kind of a decision, go make your choice. So Balaam goes, he wants to cash the check. So he takes the deal. He tries to curse God's people, and every time he tries to curse them, God thwarts his efforts. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's the Shrek passage where there's a talking donkey. You've read it, right? You just read that. We were talking about your storybook Bible yesterday, so you probably saw it in there, right? All right, good. So it's in there, okay? Awesome story. So he can't curse them, so then he counsels the Moabites. Hey, I think you could still overtake them from the inside out. Um, it's going to take a little bit of time, but send in all the women you can. They will fall prey. They will, they will take the bait, and we will slowly be able to beat them from the inside out. And that's actually what we see in Numbers 31:16, As a summary of that story, it says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord." Now remember, just kind of pointing back to last week, remember each of the examples involved sexuality. And so here's another one in Jude's book that uh, Jude points to this reality where God's grace is being perverted uh, primarily as it relates to our sexual identity and our sexual expression, which again, guys, makes Jude a relevant book for us, not just 2,000 years ago, but uh, for our day to day. But Balaam's example gives us another really sobering reality. Balaam chose to abandon God. We would say, not abandon, we would probably say like sell our soul. He sold his soul for this. Um, But here's what we see in Balaam's, did did you see he's the one who sinned? And while most of God's people probably had no idea what Balaam did, God's family was wrecked because of the choice that Balaam made. Guys, there's a really important principle here that we don't want to believe or accept in our kind of age of self-autonomy. But that is when you belong to a family, any family, but especially when you belong to God's family, when we choose to rebel, to live life beyond the limits, but we do it privately. We do it after dark. We do it online. We, we have a hidden browser. We, we do whatever we need to do so it's private. We think, well, this won't affect anybody else. You just have to understand that's not a biblical idea. Whenever anyone sins, private or publicly, there are ripple effects from living beyond the boundaries of God's kindness. And those ripples will always find their way up on the shores of the lives of other people and scar them and wound them and break them. And that's exactly what happens in Balaam's example. They were clueless to what he had done, but they were wrecked because of his rebellion. Because Balaam became a hidden reef underneath the calm surface of the water in God's family. Guys, we don't live to ourselves. We don't live to ourselves. There was a third example, Korah. Korah actually straight up rejected authority. Korah led 250 people to rebel against Moses and Aaron's rule, God-appointed rule. So he stepped out from under their authority. And so Jude is using them as a symbol to say, look, when you choose to live beyond the limits or when you choose to live behind artificial limits, what you are doing is you're actually rejecting Jesus' authority over you. And you're saying, I am the authority over myself. And I know better than God knows for me. Like God wrote the Bible so many years ago, like maybe those authors didn't understand the complexity of life in 2022. And so I read the Bible and then I step away from it and I say, but I need to contextualize that for 2022, the modern age. God would never mean that now. And so we kind of, we we place ourselves as the authority over our father's voice or words rather than receiving or submitting to, to his authority, okay? All right, so let's just focus on these three words, walk, abandon, perish. Guys, these words apply to us personally, and they apply to our church family. You have the freedom to walk away from God's kind, kingly rule. You have the freedom in your soul to walk away. You have the freedom in your soul to abandon the home that God has created for you underneath his kind, kingly rule within the limits that he has given you for your flourishing. But what you need to hear prophetically from God's own mouth and through the mouth of Jude and all the other prophets in Scripture, and this morning, prophetically over your life, if you choose to walk away and if you choose to abandon, it doesn't matter if you abandon to sensuality, it doesn't matter if you abandon to to strict you out either direction, the only outcome in both of those places is death for your soul. Now Jesus in his mercy works overtime to follow us. How many days do you walk? A lot of days, right? How many days in your life have you abandoned? Like in your soul, literally the decision you made was I understand I'm abandoning a safe place under Jesus rule and I'm going to step out on this in this Decision, and I, you even deep down, you have a sense it is going to be destructive. Let me just ask you how many times has Jesus pursued you beyond the boundary and actually brought you back in kindness? A ton of times, yeah? But the eventual ultimate outcome, but for the mercy of Jesus, is the destruction of our souls and the destruction of his family, the dying. So now, let's just ask this question. If that is what is at stake, right? Contending for the faith in the family, right? Contending for the centrality of the gospel, contending for the beauty of the gospel, contending for the beauty of life within the limits of God's kindness, contending for these things as a family. If what is at stake is the culture of our family, like contending leads to beauty and safety, the lack of contending leads to ugliness and brokenness and danger, no rest, no redemption, no shipwreck. How does Jesus feel, how does he respond in the absence of contending when his families are wrecked? Or let's ask it this way, how does Jesus respond when hidden reefs get built up underneath the calm waters of his family's harbor? How do you think he responds? Jude doesn't want us guessing. He's going to tell us. It's right here. Verse 14. He says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Now we mentioned Enoch, really two weeks running now. Um, You know, you can read all of Enoch. You just have to Google it. It's a PDF and you don't have to pay for it. It's not in the the canon of scripture, if you will, but um, uh, the Jewish people, the Hebrew faith, didn't view it as on par with scripture, but placed a lot of weight on Enoch's words and his writings, like to corroborate or support, right? So it's a very important book, though it's not uh, what we would, we would view as like an inspired part of, of God's revelation. But Jude quotes him here, says Enoch, uh, it's actually Enoch, 1 Enoch nine. if you want to go read it for yourself, okay? He prophesied this, he said, so here, here's the answer to our question, behold, the Lord, he means Jesus, comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, holy ones, angels, messengers. Now, in the Bible, ten thousands can be literal, like maybe Jesus is showing up with exactly ten thousand. But honestly, more often than not, ten thousands are, is used symbolically to suggest a number that's just too big for. He's coming up. He's coming up with an army that you can't count. Either way, ten thousand or tens of thousands to execute judgment on all to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. This is one of those verses that you're tempted to rip out of context and be like, God's talking about the people out there, outside of his family, and all means all. But no, listen, he's writing this to churches, right? So this pronouncement of judgment is for people who are inside of God's family who have walked, abandoned, and embraced either sensuality, life beyond Jesus' limits, or have embraced strictuality, life behind artificial limits. Because let's just get this out there. If you live in God's harbor, and you embrace sensuality, you pollute the beauty of the water, and people can't see the beauty of the gospel. If you embrace strictuality, you know what we do when we build artificial barriers If you haven't been here long, um, you've heard of the tetrapods, yeah? You know what the tetrapods are? I should have put a a picture up on the screen. That's what I love about the harbors here in Oki. Most of them are kind of formed out of those tetrapods. When we embrace strictuality, what we do as God's kids, God's family, is we build our own artificial wall that actually blocks off the entrance to the harbor, and we make it impossible for other rebels to find their way into God's redemptive family. This is why Jesus cares so deeply about this problem. All the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly. We notice he keeps repeating ungodly, right? Like so unlike God to live or lead people beyond the limits. We don't love people when we lead them beyond the limits. We don't love people when we build artificial limits. It's ungodly. All the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So how does Jesus feel? Well, we just kind of summarize it this way. Um, If you, if we build hidden reefs underneath the water surface of God's family, Jesus is coming to aggressively confront and deal with any who would knowingly lead people to life beyond the limits or life behind artificial limits. We have to understand if we contribute to the ripping out of the souls of people through artificial reefs, Jesus is coming to rip those people away from his family. He's coming, and he is coming in judgment for all who would pollute the waters of the harbor that is meant to be safe And beautiful. Now you're like, man, that's harsh. Yeah, yeah, that that really, really is harsh. And just to kind of reinforce that, look, the three examples that Jude chose, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Um, Cain, uh, Cain, uh, what happened to Cain? He was exiled, right? So he was kicked out of God's family. What happened to Balaam? He died in battle. And here's where the trauma happens. What happened to Korah? Anybody know? All right, let me read this for you. Just briefly. Here's Korah. Um, This is Numbers 16. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. You ever read that before? swallowed them up with all their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive alive into Sheol. That's the place of the dead. They went down into Sheol alive and the earth closed over them. That's horrible. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. Now, I don't know how they make children's storybook Bibles. Not what I do. Children's storybook Bibles, uh, children's Bible storybooks now. I haven't seen that picture depicted in any of my kids. Well, every child of the 80s, it featured prominently in my childhood book. In fact, here is the exact picture I grew up with. <laughs> right? Right? This is one of the reasons I'm in counseling right now. <laughs> now, just to make sure trauma was cemented for my generation, not only was it full color in the storybook, here were the accompanying coloring sheets for your children's craft time. Now, you laugh and shudder, but some of the same people in this room have used, like, the Noah's Ark motif for your baby's nursery. Like, those, those stories are kind of on par with each other. Just got to throw that out there. Like, if you're going to paint Noah's Ark on the walls, you might as well paint Cora's Rebellion on your baby's bedroom wall. I'm just, just saying, it's kind of the same idea. All right. So a little humor and we laugh. That's good because there are moments that are so serious that you need a little humor just to loosen up, okay? Because guys, this whole conversation is not funny. It is dead serious. Here's what we need to take away from that. Like, how does Jesus feel? What's his view? His view is that the church, his family is that sacred. And the beautiful safe harbor that is supposed to exist when we gather is of ultimate importance to Jesus, our King. And that when those waters are violated, when the safety of those waters are violated knowingly, when the calmness, when the beauty is violated, Jesus will go to the fullest length that he needs to to judge whomever is responsible for the hidden reefs below the surface of the water. And he will judge and he will restore the beauty And he will restore the safety of his family. He will stop at nothing. And we're like, man, that's a little harsh. Well, you could look at it that way, or you could look at it this way. How deeply committed is Jesus to to pursuing and rescuing rebelled sinners who have been shipwrecked in the perfect storm of this world? How committed is he? That's how committed he is. Guys, the church exists in this world to be the safe harbor that is beautiful and it is, it is where we find rest and it is where we find restoration. In other words, there is nowhere else in the perfect storm of this fallen world where rest and restoration can be known. Nowhere so how committed to, is Jesus to making sure his family remains beautiful and safe for those not yet in the family? That's how committed he is. And that's beautiful. That's not harsh. What would be harsh and unloving and lacking beauty is if Jesus was kind of indifferent about the church. Yeah, You do what you want with the water. Put a reef in. I don't care. I it's just a little thing. That's fine. A little sensuality, a little strictuality. No big deal. Light's a little. Them, people will find their way in. No, no, Jesus cares deeply because people don't find their way in. That's how committed He is to you. And guys, that's really good news because some of you in here this morning, you're wrecked. Like your ship is splintered apart in the perfect storm of this life. You are being tossed around by the waves, you're being thrashed. Your soul is right, and you know it. As I'm saying these words, you know it. You know you're not in the harbor. You know your ship is splintered at the bottom of the sea. You're treading water and you know you're headed to the bottom of the sea. And the reason Jesus cares so deeply about the beauty and the safety of this harbor is he intends to pursue you and to rescue you and bring you into this home where you can find rest and restoration and beauty and and acceptance into his family. He loves you and he's pursuing you. Hmm. There are things I would like to say, but that's just kind of how preaching goes. So let me boil a few of those down and just, okay. All right. How should we respond to all of this? Guys, how should we respond? Um, A couple ways. First, this, this work of contending, I hope you're like, I hope you're a little dissatisfied with um, the things I haven't said about contending. Because you're like, John, you made, you made it sound like it was really important, but you haven't talked about the work of contending at all. Uh, I did that on purpose because the conclusion of Jude's letter deals with two very clear we do to be people contending. You might be surprised because again, contending, we're like, ah, contentious. I don't like that word. No, 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 no. The first one next week, we're going to see Jude talking about you keep yourself in the love of God. That's where all contending begins. You keeping yourself in the love of God so that you can keep others in the love of God. Okay. So that's where it's going to start. And then the next week, what we're going to see is if you want to be serious about contending, Jude's going to talk to us about caring for Doubters and deconstructors who are in our family or hanging around our harbor. Okay, so that's the direction we're going. But we really need to respond this way. And uh, I almost, I almost skipped over this, guys. The last, the last verse, uh, verse sixteen. We can easily walk away from this sermon and be like, Oh, "Well, um, Cain sounds really bad. Cora sounds really bad. Balaam sounds really bad. I don't think I'm walking in the way of Cain. I haven't sold my soul like like Balaam. Um, I'm not perishing like Cora." So. Uh, there's really no danger of me being someone who's somewhat responsible for reefs below the surface of the water, but Jude's not going to let us get away that easily. Look at verse 16. He wants to give some very, so these are like yellow to red flags of, I might be responsible for a reef in the water kind of statements. Look at this. No more obscurity, no more like kind of vague old Testament references These people who are responsible for the reefs under the water are grumblers and malcontents. Whoa, now all of a sudden you're at my level. In fact, those two words go together. The word malcontent, we don't use a lot. That kind of means somebody who is um, discontent with fate, fate or like in a Christian context, we look at our lives and we are angry at God for the lot in life that I have. That's a malcontent. So if we put those two words together, grumblers and malcontents, now... I am partially responsible for dropping reefs in when I have a heart that is discontent towards the God who is my good king and I have a mouth that verbalizes that complaining or grumbling towards my God. Every time my heart is that way and I open my mouth, I drop a reef below the water that somebody else can shipwreck on. Grumblers and contents. Uh, following their own sinful desires. We talked a lot about desires last week, so I won't linger. Basically what Jude is saying is every time my desire becomes supreme to me, instead of being submitted to Jesus, I drop a reef in the water. Okay? Supreme desire. Desire in and of themselves are not evil. They are evil when... I am more committed to following whatever I feel or want than I am submitting that desire to Jesus. Right? And then maybe one other yellow or red flag, he says they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. In other words, participation in the family is for them a checking of the box or about their own status and not about the good of other people and Jesus' fame. So culturally for us, we have to be very careful here because for many of us culturally, church is a religious service or program that we consume, not a family that we commune with. And what Jude is saying is when church is something we consume, we're dropping reefs rather than when it is a family that we commune with, ripping out the reefs for the good of other people. So we need to pay attention to those red and yellow flags. All right, let me just close this way. Two things. One, if you a family, this is a beautiful passage. It makes you proud that Jesus is our rescuing king in the right ways. It makes you glad to belong to a family that has this kind of commitment to and this kind of beautiful culture. If you're a part of this family, I've talked about, we talked about the harbor being safe. It's not safe so that it's a safe place that we can hide. If you're a part of God's family, he brings us in the, into the harbor for our rest and our redemption, and he sends us back out into the storms for the good of other people. We're gathered. We're in the harbor now. We're rehearsing the gospel. When you go back out those doors, the Father is sending you back into the perfect storm. And you know what's beautiful about the gospel you could ship you, you could be wrecked in that storm this week as you try to live for the good of other people. You could sink in a manner of speaking. But you know what? There's is, there is no fear for a follower of Jesus because what does Jesus say clearly through Jude? You are my deeply loved sons, fully forgiven, fully accepted, and forever kept. So even if you sail into the perfect storm this week as you, as you strive to live in a way that glorifies God and is good for other people, and you're wrecked for it, the Father will never lose you. You could sink to the depth of the ocean and Jesus will be there with you. you will, he will never let you go. No more fear in the storms for us. We are not dependent upon our circumstances in life for purpose or meaning or satisfaction. We have that all in Christ and his safe harbor. The final reason I love this passage and I love Jesus' commitment to the beauty and safety of his harbor is because, and we've already talked about this a minute, but I just want to say this to those of you who might be hurting, is because of what this means for those of you who are hurting and alone or weary. Guys, do you know you don't have to pass a test to make it in. Order? You don't have to prove anything, me anybody else in here. If you know what Jesus said, he said, are you weary? Come on, sail in, come to me. Are you tired? Come here. If you come to me, with your empty hands and your shipwrecked life and your shame and your water-filled lungs, if you come to me in all of your shame and all of your guilt, I'm gonna give you rest. I am going to give you redemption and I am going to give you restoration. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? And that's how committed Jesus is to his family. That's how committed he is to you in your pain right now. He sees you and his intent is to pursue you and bring you into the safe harbor of his family where you will find rest and restoration. Let's pray. Father, um, a lot of beauty here. Thank you for rescuing us out of the storms of this life. And for those of us who have been adopted in, help us to see the beauty. We are sent back out into storms for the good of others. And dad, for those kids, for those people in this room who are in pain or shipwrecked. Pray that this morning, for the first time in their lives, they would see the beauty of your harbor, the safety that is found there, and that they would find rest and reconciliation and redemption for their souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.